Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 161, Lustful Looking. And on the podcast today, I want to talk about Matthew 5, 27 to 30 in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is his section describing what true adultery um, actually consists of. And I want to do a little bit of unpacking about what his words mean, what they don't mean, some um, general things about the way I was raised and what I was taught about um, this topic, not necessarily this passage, but this topic, and then send some helpful reminders about what life in the kingdom actually is meant to be like according to Jesus. And so I think this will be an encouraging episode, at least I hope it will, and um, as we continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So without any more of an introduction, let's just get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read the passage that we'll be talking about today, which is Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, this is the passage um, that, like I said, we're going to look at today. And one of the things you notice right away is that Jesus once again repeats this phrase that he used in the section on anger which was from um, verses 21 to 26, where he starts with, you have heard that it was said, you shall not, and here it says, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 21, he had said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders, right, will be liable to judgment. And so to remind you once again, what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount are some teachings that the people would have received from the scribes or from the Pharisees or the teachers of the law that was, this is what the law says and this is what the law means. And so Jesus, of course, is challenging what they have been taught the law actually means. So what Jesus here has is, is simply attempting to critique is just that the seventh commandment, which says you shall not commit adultery, is not the only thing that counts as sexual unfaithfulness, which is really the purpose of the seventh commandment. It's to maintain loyalty and fidelity to the marriage partner that you have entered in with. And adultery, of course, simply being you are stepping outside of that faithful covenant and either committing adultery, which is simply you're having sex with another man's wife, or you are um, stepping outside of what is considered faithfulness within your own marriage. And the Pharisees had been teaching that unless you actually go out and do that, you aren't really guilty of anything. In fact, even in the ways they interpreted the law, this typically came down hard on the woman. Um, Again, we have examples of this in the Gospels, and that is the one instance in John chapter 8 
where the Pharisees bring a woman whom they claim was caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they request that Jesus abides by the law, which had indicated that this woman was to be brought before the elders of the city and stoned for her crime. And what's so disturbing about this image is that, of course, if she was caught in the act of adultery, she clearly was either with the man or they were in the process of having sex with one another when they were caught. Why wasn't the man brought to Jesus? Why is it just the woman? And I was listening this past week um, just to the Voxology podcast, uh, Mike Erie and Tim Stafford, uh, but Mike himself posed a question in relation to this passage and what he what he asked was interesting when he said, you know, it's, it's very intriguing that Jesus seems to, in his teaching here in Matthew 5, um, directs this teaching toward men, which if you understand what's happening here, G- Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's addressing his disciples, but he's in the presence of a, lar- a large crowd who's listening in. And you can be pretty sure that there are some women listening in to hear what he has to say about what life in the kingdom is going to be like. And in the section that I just read from Matthew 5, you do notice that Jesus is only talking to men. Now, this isn't because Jesus doesn't believe that women also struggle with looking with lustful intent at, you know, an attractive man or that women don't have sexual desires within them. It's only something that men have. That's not what's going on here. But what is going on is that Jesus recognizes that we've lived in a world where men have seemed to have been given, you know, a hall pass in some sense, and that women have been responsible for some of the uh, troubles that, that go on in the world. And we saw this taking place in John chapter 8, like I've already pointed out, is that here's somebody caught in the act of adultery, and for some reason, they're just bringing the woman to Jesus, not the man as well. And Mike Erie on his podcast said this, he said, is there one gender that has weaponized sex and used it as a means to violate, subjugate, and oppress the other gender? And the answer to Mike's question is, yeah, it has. Um, and so we know what the answer is, and it is the man. Um, the men have used this from the beginning to subjugate other people. Um, Abraham wanted to <laughs> get ahead in his blessing of, of um, you know, Abimelech in, in Genesis chapter 15. And so he offers um, for his wife to basically say, you're my sister, and then basically the king takes her into his court. I mean, Abraham puts her in a very vulnerable place in order to advance himself, and that was just a customary way it was, it was thought about um, in those days. And so it's, it's an unsettling reality, but Jesus here is, I think, in speaking to the crowds, is actually giving them something that is very new to them, and that is that I'm going to speak to the men I'm going to address the heart attitudes that exist in the men, and I'm going to do that because I'm talking about the kind of righteousness that appears in my kingdom. And in my kingdom, women have to be safe. All the modesty stuff that is talked about in our world, all the women shaming, it started a long, long, long time ago, and it's been going on ever since, and it has appeared even in Christian places. 
Now, I think what Jesus is doing in in referring back to um, the seventh commandment is he says in verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is the same way that Jesus is addressing issues of murder. He's talking about uh, murdering another person, ending their life. And I think I talked about this in the sermon that I preached, which I published as the episode on the podcast for last time. Um, but that was that if if the, the, the root of this issue is already alive and well in you, then giving it full vent is just giving it the opportunity to, right, end this person's life or to create a world. This is ultimately what murder is, right? Murder is creating a world where this person no longer exists. Well, the way that anger in the heart works and the way that resentment and bitterness and contempt and judgment work is that you, in essence, live as if that person doesn't exist. And Jesus is saying the reason why our world is filled with such violence and such murder and hatred is it is it takes root deep down inside the heart. And if you want to root out murder in the world, you want to be faithful to a God who opposes murder but loves the flourishing of life, then you need to deal with the attitudes that actually develop over time and create the kind of environment where murder feels like the only option, where murder feels justified, where murder feels like the right decision to make. And Jesus is addressing the same thing here. And I I don't find it ironic that the first two topics he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount with respect to truly living out the law are violence and sex. Um, These two topics still to this day create some of the worst and most horrific instances that human beings can experience. Um, If you tie them together violence and sex, you get something called rape. Um, it's a, it's a horrific occurrence in our world. And so Jesus speaks here, I think by tying in the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery, which I think the Pharisees kind of just stated as well, if you're not physically having sex with a person who's married, then you're not guilty of breaking this commandment. But they oftentimes forget that the final commandment in the Ten Commandments was, a, was, was regarding coveting. And Exodus 20 verse 17 just simply says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, To covet just means to yearn, to possess, or have something, to desire what belongs to another inordinately, so to in excess. And I think this is where the teaching gets a little bit skewed. And for me, I'm 44 years old. I was in high school in the 90s, and in my Christian subculture, purity culture was the whole shebang. It was everything that there was to say. And in purity culture, the goal, the only goal was for people who were not married to maintain sexual purity. And sexual purity meant that you would not have sex with anyone until you were married. 
all of the teaching was about this. All of the books that were written were about this. And the point in purity culture was that you would be pure. You would save yourself for marriage, a, a, a just fine teaching, by the way. But it was framed in such a way that, that lust problems and concerns with pornography and the way people dressed and so questions of modesty begin to surface. And looking back, and that's the only ability I have is to look back because I, I know how I thought and what I was like as a teenager. And I also know what I was taught without really the ability to critically think. But it was a very one-sided um, discussion. It's a discussion that I think kind of ignores Jesus's words here, words that do in fact address men. Because in purity culture, it's almost as if this passage from Matthew 5 was ignored entirely. Um, it, 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 it messed up the way that Jesus, I think, intends to communicate this by doing a couple of things. I, I'm sure it does a lot more, but as I was preparing for this, I just came up with two right off the bat, one way that I think it harms men and one way that I think it harms women, um, among many other ways. Um, but the first way that I think it harms men is that it criticizes them for being attracted to women. Um, people look at this thing and they say, well, if you lust, if you have desire, if you're attracted to somebody who you're not married to, then that's a problem that's a bad thing. It leads to bad things. And therefore, you're not supposed to do that. And so what you need to do is you need to shield your eyes. You need to look away. And since that's an impossibility in the church or in the world, what you need to do is you need to tell the women who could listen to your perspective that they should dress in such a way that they don't cause you to stumble. And these are the words that were used in this context. They need to, they need to tell women that they need to dress modestly. And modestly was a entirely subjective idea, but it either meant their shorts had to go down a certain length past their knees or they couldn't wear spaghetti straps uh, on their tank tops or the way that they, you know, their shirts couldn't fit too tightly or they, they couldn't put themselves in different positions, uh, you know, posture wise because it would be too attractive to some people. And where the conversation ultimately went was it's sinful to see a woman and be attracted to her. So therefore, the best way to deal with this, since you can't not look at women, is to encourage the women who would believe in Jesus' teaching to cover themselves up such that when men look at you, they're not going to be sexually attracted to you. And I, I hope some of you are listening to this and have no idea what purity culture is and are just like, man, that is totally messed up because it is. And I hope there's some of you listening who were taught this kind of stuff growing up and it's at least a slight sliver of encouragement to you to realize that there are people out in the world today, I'm one of them, who think that this teaching is complete garbage because it is. And the reason why it is, is because we haven't taken the time to really listen to what Jesus is saying. And I want to focus on that for just a second. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Now, Jesus is not afraid of using this word intent. Um, he does it several times in the very next chapter. He talks about if you give alms to the poor, 
um, in order to be seen by other people, or you pray on the street corners in order to be seen by other people, or you fast in order to be seen as super spiritual. What Jesus is saying is it isn't the action itself that is bad. It's the motive behind the action that's creating this destructive tailspin. And so when Jesus says here, you look at a woman with lustful intent, he is not talking about walking through the mall or walking through a store or walking into church and noticing a woman who is attractive. He's also not addressing the fact that when you notice her, you automatically think things like this is normal. And sadly, far too few, far too few people say that this is normal, but it's normal. God made us in a particular way. He made us to be responsive when we are attracted. It's not a sinful thing. It's not something to carry shame around. It is a normal functioning part of life. Now, if when you look and see someone who is attractive and you continue to look and gaze upon them and slowly begin to objectify them and imagine what it would be like to see them undressed and to have sex with them, you have entered into this, I am deliberately looking at this person with lustful intent. And I am a man, but would not have a difficult time finding a woman who has been undressed or dressed, you know, not dressed down, that's right, who has been undressed in the minds of men, they have seen the look on men's faces, they have felt the degradation when that happens to them. Men who might position themselves as being righteous on the outside, but inwardly, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, there's, there's death on the inside. And through one's eyes, those heart longings come out and they're super easy to detect and they're super disturbing. They're really, really creepy as my wife will oftentimes describe it. And these are looks which are far more than an appreciation of someone's actual beauty. Or if it happens in many cases, it's not even that you're consciously deciding, I'm going to appreciate this woman's beauty. It's rather you see a person who's attractive and your body just responds. That is not sinful. What is sinful is then when you begin to feed on that, when you begin to work through that, when you begin to think about that all the time and it leads you down paths that are not healthy, it leads you to then begin looking at this woman as if her body or her looks are there simply to satisfy your sexual desires, which is simply not true. And so Jesus here is stripping away the idea that to break the seventh commandment is not limited to something like I go and I have sex with another woman. And the reason is, is because when this lustful craving begins to happen in a person's heart, the reason why they may not actually go and have sex with this person is number one, because they would get caught. Number two, because they don't want their current marriage, whatever, to be ruined as a result. Number three, the opportunity hasn't per presented itself and therefore they're you know unable to actually act on it. Any number of reasons which might prevent the physical action from happening, but Jesus is saying if those things were removed, 
if threat of being found out wasn't a possibility and it wouldn't ruin your marriage and you know, you wouldn't carry around extra guilt for doing it, then people would give into it all the time. And if they do, then that means something is alive and well in their heart that is drawing them into that kind of sin. And what I find so destructive about purity culture is because we don't take the time to talk about this. We don't take the time to encourage men that it is okay to find another woman attractive, that it is perfectly normal and natural as your body is going through changes and then it remains this way for years and years and years and years that because they made it into you can't look or that's lust, then they've had to shift their attention away and say, well, that's impossible to live my life without looking and being attracted to women. So I guess what we really need to do is we need to pull the women in and we need to tell them that the way they dress is 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 creating problems for us. And therefore, the women are the ones who need to safeguard the fact that we're unable to control where our eyes go. And so if our eyes ever land on them, we want them to take the responsibility to be the kinds of people that are going to prevent us from lusting. And I have to tell you, I've lost count of the number of Christian books who then, in even speaking about marriage, continue to put the responsibility for the man's sexual purity squarely on the shoulders of the woman or the wife or the daughter or whoever. And it's despicable because Jesus doesn't even hear address women. And he doesn't, again, not because he's oblivious to the fact that women too deal with lust. It's because he's he's trying to correct a a... a a ship that's been going in the wrong direction for so long, he needs to speak to the men. And let me read you Mike Erie's quote one more time because I think it's fitting. Is there one gender that has weaponized sex and used it as a means to violate, subjugate, and oppress the other gender? And the answer is yes. And so Jesus, of course, is setting up a kingdom where women have to be safe. Women do not need to fear who is going to look at them in inappropriate ways. And I don't talk to a lot of women about this, but I've talked to my wife enough to know that she has had numerous encounters in churches of men looking at her in a way that she knows is not just a, a glance at her as a, as a human being. It is somebody who has decided that looking at her and looking at her with lustful intent is what is on their mind at the moment, and they're going to go right ahead and do it. And Jesus is here pointing out, especially in the church, especially in his kingdom, where kingdom citizens of his gather around for worship, for goodness sake, this needs to be something that is addressed and handled in an appropriate way. And so, of course, Jesus then gives this really crazy example. And I know it, it throws people because they don't always know what to do with it, right? But he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I do think it's important um, through the years, people have interpreted this literally. Some have said, oh, no, it's just metaphorically, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I do think it's important to point out 
without getting too wooden or too literalistic here, that even Jesus, according to his own idea of righteousness, he's not talking about just actions that take place. He's talking about heart attitudes and intentions and motives deep within a person. And so I do think the first question we have to ask when we come to this, if your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin, you know, gouge it out or cut it off, whatever, tear it out, is to ask if you tore out your right eye, is that going to do anything to prevent your heart from continuing to lust? And the answer is no. If you cut your right hand off, is that going to do anything? Well, no. So Jesus most likely is not speaking here of something literalistic, like I want you to cut your hand off or I want you to cut your eye out. But he will speak about eyes later. And in chapter 6 in particular, the English kind of misses this, but in Greek it speaks about if your eye is single. And so what I think Jesus is getting at here is you've got eyes now that are functioning in multiple ways. You've got one thing on the outside, which is giving off some impression, and you've got something on the inside that's giving off another impression, and you're, you're divided. You're divided in the way that you are looking at reality. And so when he speaks about you know, tearing out your right eye and cutting off your right hand, I mean, in a right-dominated world, these are basically saying your strong hand and your best eye, like your best ability to look. And so Jesus is speaking about maybe some drastic measures that could or should be taken in order to prevent you from heading down this road. And I do find it ironic that Jesus doesn't say, if your right eye causes you to sin, remove the women from your presence that are making this happen. Jesus doesn't put the responsibility on the outside world. He puts the responsibility on us on the inside world. And I do think that the purity culture world has really screwed this up for us because it has encouraged us to keep these things hidden. It's encouraged us to not bring this out into the open or to basically say, yeah, I just lust all the time and I can't control it. And and I do think we need to define the difference between looking and seeing someone who is attractive and being attracted to them versus someone who lusts after them. And Again, I'm a guy, so I know what Jesus is talking about here, and I will tell you that there is a tremendous amount of freedom and a tremendous amount of strength gained through having close friends and people in your life that you can trust where you can share some of the deep struggles that you're going through. I don't mean in general. I mean specifically because there are reasons why people's hearts are drawn to certain people. And there are reasons why lust works its way in inside the human heart. And one of the biggest reasons is because it's a place of secrecy. It's a place of privacy. It's a place where we've come to believe that we can handle these things without any type of parameters in our life, without any type of, of real people who are going to hold us up and who are going to strengthen us and who are going to encourage us. But I think Jesus invites us in to take some drastic measures. And those drastic measures involve for us things that we are responsible to do, not what somebody else is responsible to do for us. And so I want to encourage any of my listeners on this podcast, if you're a woman and you've been told that the way you dress and the way you look 
is been framed as you're a stumbling block for men. I want you to know that is coming from somewhere completely outside of Jesus and his kingdom. That quite possibly is coming from insecure, childish, immature men who don't want to face some of the darkness that is in their own heart and soul and they have decided that it is an easier sell for them to put the responsibility onto you. I want you to hear me clearly. That is unbiblical. That is unfair. And that is hellish. Because the responsibility does not fall on you. Jesus certainly doesn't put it on you. Jesus puts it on the men. And so for me... As someone who, as a youth pastor in his early to mid-20s, was invited back to the Christian university that I graduated from to be on a panel of men in front of 300-plus college girls telling them things about modesty and how they should and shouldn't dress on the college campus or at the beach during spring break so as to keep their brothers pure, to those 300 women... I'm sorry to all of the women who've been subjected to men telling you it's your job to dress a certain way in order to prevent them from stumbling. I'm sorry. And the reason I'm sorry is because we don't need to have the the focus put on women when Jesus puts the focus on the men. And so what Jesus is doing, I think, is creating an environment where women feel safe. Women are not blamed for men's... um, over-eager, lustful looks. that They're not to blame. That fuel is coming from the inside of a man. And this is ultimately what Jesus is getting at. And a book that we did a by the book years ago, now years, maybe it was years, I need to look it up, but it was The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. And he talks about that, this for just a minute. Um, his first third of his book is is all about hell, and I'm thinking about releasing that episode for in the future. In the future, because right now Jesus has talked about being in danger of the fires of hell from from the section on anger, and here now in this section on lust, he speaks about hell twice. And so I'm thinking about doing a little release of that episode because I want us to think about hell in a way that is faithful to what Jesus is saying. But Joshua, uh, Ryan Butler, has this to say. He's speaking about his disgust in the world and how brokenhearted and how unjust it is that there's so much sex trafficking and terrible things happening with injustice regarding young girls and women all, all across the world. And then he quotes Jesus's passage, which talks about not committing adultery and looking at a woman with lustful intent. And so Joshua says this, suddenly I had a problem. Jesus wants to get rid of sex sex trafficking too. Only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. I want to get rid of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to get rid of lust. I want to prune back the wicked tree. He wants to dig out the root. And that wicked root is in me. I may not be a sex trafficker, a pedophile tourist, or a greedy madam, but I have lust. I can be one lusty animal. Jesus says even if you look lustfully at one of God's daughters, 
demeaningly commodifying her as an object for your own self-gratification, then the power of hell has its roots in you. And when God arrives to establish his kingdom, you are in danger of being cast outside the kingdom with it. I was no longer simply part of the solution. I was part of the problem. The enemy was no longer simply out there, but in here. In the famous words of Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. This is what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with a world that has decided that adultery is only the external action of having sex with somebody who isn't your wife. And Jesus says what starts that, how that happens, how a person arrives at a place where they feel like that is a good idea with no care in the world or concern in the world for the families that that will destroy, the lives that that will destroy, the corruption that that will introduce into the world. Jesus says true righteousness, which is a righteousness of the heart, longs to root all of that out of God's world, out of God's kingdom. And Jesus knows that roots grow up into big plants. He'll use this analogy numerous times in speaking about the kingdom. And so Jesus' goal always in bringing true righteousness to the world is to address those broken aspects of corruption and injustice and, and harm on God's good world at the root level. And when he does that, if his own people, first and foremost, are willing to root themselves out and to work on those issues first and foremost, he promises that we will see fruit that will last forever and it really does bother me that in the church, we talk so little about this and so much about what we perceive to be the sexual waywardness of our culture. We want to talk about abortion. We want to talk about gay marriage. We want to talk about transgender realities, all of which, by the way, have to do with sexual topics. Abortion happens because a man and a woman have sex and the woman gets pregnant. Marriage and gay marriage has to do with people that we don't believe should be having sex together. Transgender are people who have decided that their biological sex doesn't line up with their experienced gender. And so they want to transition it from one to the next. It is very interesting that those are all the hot button topics spoken about in the church. And yet what goes unsaid are the sexual topics that Jesus talks about. Now, I'm not here to talk about whether we should have a, an opinion on transgender or gay marriage or all of these things. I mean, so many people want to have this conversation. I'm just wondering why we spend so little time talking about what Jesus talks about. I can look around and see plenty of people who feel like they're standing on Jesus's ways by voting for certain policies that will make transgender realities not a thing and gay marriage not a thing and abortion not a thing, but aren't actually focused on whether or not they are pure in the heart when it comes to sexual realities. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but they're very, very high regarding how many Christian men are addicted to pornography of some kind. The statistics get even worse 
when you begin to survey Christian marriages and find out whether the women in those marriages are as equally satisfied in a sexual relationship with their husbands as the husbands may or may not be with their wives. If you were to meet with counselors and talk to them about the way couples discuss these things, you might find that in some marriages that are unhealthy, men think that it's their right by given by God to for their wife to have sex with them whenever they choose. These are things that I kind of, through osmosis, picked up through the years and have come to find out that I'm not alone, so it wasn't like I made it up. But when we step back from the situation and begin to look at it, we realize these aren't attitudes and beliefs that are really for the flourishing of every person. They actually are bent around the flourishing of a particular kind of person, um, a man, and don't often have the same consideration for women. And that's a real problem. And it's not a problem because then you want, well, now now somebody's going to be a feminist and they're going to stand up and they're going to push back and they're going to push too far. You know, men and women are equal. It's not that women are better than men. Once again, I just want to say, has history shown that one gender, one gender, has weaponized sex and used it as a means to violate, subjugate, and oppress the other gender? And the answer to the question is, yes. Why? And my next question would be, why is that same reality still happening in the church? The church is supposed to be the place where the kingdom of God is lived out in small communities all across the world. Why is it that in those communities, the same corrupting message, which is very unkingdom-like, is still being perpetuated by those in positions of authority. And I would suggest to you that we've simply ignored what Jesus is saying here. Jesus calls us to get real. He calls us to get honest. He calls us to deal radically and violently, at least in a metaphorical way from my perspective, of dealing with this stuff. Hey, if your computer is causing you problems, throw it away. If getting on Instagram and finding photos of people that you shouldn't be looking at is causing you a problem, delete Instagram from your phone. If going by a certain grocery store on your way home from work because there's an associate who's there that you like to check out, start shopping at another store. If you can't get through the aisles in Food Lion without looking at the magazine rack or you can't buy water at the store because the the magazines are on the same aisle and you can't walk by those without glancing four or five times at the same magazine, buy your water somewhere else. Do something that will help in you engaging a fight for the honor of women, for for the purity of your own heart, and for the flourishing of a kingdom where women feel safe Men can love women, not as sexual objects, but as, as co-image bearers of God. Jesus is speaking about these things because he wants to create a kingdom where everybody can flourish. Not just the men and not just the women, but both people. Both people made in the image of God who learn and grow to appreciate one another, grow in mutual respect for one another, and honor Jesus in the midst of all of it. I think we've got some work to do. I think we have some repentance to do. And in our context, we've just begun the Lenten season with Ash Wednesday. And all during Lent, it's a season for repentance. 
I think this would be a great opportunity to do that and to find a trusted person and to say, man, here's what's going on with me. Here's where my heart is. I'm not sure if what's happening in my life is just normal or if I've overstepped that line and I've gone into lustful intent. Can we talk about it? Can we pray through it? I need some help. And then for women to be able to have the freedom to share with one another about concerns they have, fears they have about being around certain people that they're not sure they can trust. And then for pastors and church leaders to be prepared to face this head on and not to put responsibility on a woman for dressing in a certain way where that responsibility doesn't belong, but rather on the men who have decided that it's the women's responsibility to dress appropriately in order to keep them from sinning. I've got some news for those of you who think that, and that is that there are some men whose hearts are so set on looking lustfully that a woman could wear a brown paper sack and the man would still want to know what's going on under there. Okay, it's in the man's heart. It's always been in the heart. And for us to just decide that a woman's way to show her love for, for Jesus is to dress in a modest way is an unfair thing because I have met women who have felt guilty and ashamed and embarrassed because they've, they know of people who look at them in inappropriate ways and then are forced to go home and say, what did I do to cause this problem? It's an unnecessary weight and it doesn't belong on her shoulders. Jesus says that it belongs in the heart of the one doing the lusting. And it is up to that person to take the necessary steps to put an end to it. That's where Jesus puts his focus. That's where we should put our focus too. So if you've been dealing with this, if you've been struggling, as we oftentimes say in this area, I don't want you to walk away from this feeling shame. Jesus is opening the door for us to get real. He's inviting us into a place where he can set us free. He can re rewire the way we think about women and challenge the way we look at them and think about them and approach them. So this isn't an invitation to, to carry on more guilt or more shame. I know plenty of men who carry that. That's not what Jesus is doing. But Jesus is creating the kind of place where he says, let's put it right back on us and I will walk you through it each step of the way. So that's all the time that we have for this week's episode. I'm really grateful for you listeners. Thank you for those who continue to reach out. I'm praying for several of you who have let me in on some of your own life struggles, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear of some of the reports, and I'm encouraged by lots of others. So just know that, that I'm carrying that with you every step and um, continue to pray for you. So thank you for listening. I hope you have a great week. Talk to you next time. One final word for those of you who are still tuning in. It occurred to me at the end of recording this week's episode that I, I do want to leave you with some hope. And I, I know I did my best to encourage women who have been unfairly placed in a position of being responsible for men's looks. But as I ended the episode, I realized that I really am addressing the men. And I think I want to do this in a way that's as pastoral as I possibly can. And so I want to offer a book recommendation, um, something that has been tremendously helpful for me. It led me to a lot of 
journaling, a lot of um, searching deep and confessing things and, and working through several things. But it's a book by Jay Stringer, and it's simply called Unwanted. And the subtitle is How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And Jay Stringer has dedicated much of his life to helping men who find themselves trapped. They find themselves genuinely um, addicted to things like pornography or seeking out prostitution or whatever it happens to be. And Jay brings a tremendous uh, researcher's insight, but a very pastoral, tender heart toward inviting men to explore their own stories regarding some of the things that might be leading them to uh, fantasize in certain ways, to want to act these things out. And he invites us from a multiplicity of perspectives to really open ourselves up to the healing work of Jesus. And so you can find Jay's book on Amazon. You can find it, well, I guess it's it's published by Nav Press, so you can find it there too. Um, but the book is just called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And Jay is a big proponent of when we think about those sexual struggles or the kinds of people we're attracted to, there are reasons for that. And as, as we explore our own story, as we explore our upbringing, as we explore things that have happened to us and things that we've done, we, we actually begin to um, get an understanding of what's going on in our heart and why we're drawn to certain places. And so I would invite anybody who's listening, if you know somebody who you think has really struggled with this but is genuinely trying to find freedom, Jay's book would be a fantastic place to begin that process. Um, and I think it would be something that would be like taking out your eye and, and cutting off your hand. It's, it's saying, hey, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to put some steps in place. This is not filled with cheap solutions for this problem. This is a deep dive, which for some might be intimidating. That's okay. Uh, for others, it would take a tremendous amount of courage to face some of the things that you've gone through in your life. But Jay does a great job in my mind of connecting how some of those experiences actually work their way out and how shame plays a vital part in keeping people addicted to sexual brokenness and acting those things out in their own lives. And so I could not recommend this book to you highly enough and I would highly encourage you to get it for yourself and read it. Um, if you're a woman and you're trying to understand sexual brokenness of, of what men can go through, it would be great there. I mean, he's talking to women as well who are going through these things, although I will say that a large portion of his time is spent with men, and, and that's probably pretty understandable. Um, but anyway, I didn't want to leave this episode without offering you some encouragement and hope, and this book is absolutely fantastic, and it is something that I really think we need to be speaking about more and talking about more um, to create the kind of healthy, life-flourishing kingdom that Jesus came to set up. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening and have a great week.